Today's guest on the show, I'm, uh, I'm welcoming Andy Edstrom, who is the author of the book, Why Buy Bitcoin, which I am tipping now to become a cult classic. I've said this on a few shows before, and he's got a big smile on his face. Mm. He thinks I'm joking. Uh, I'm not. I think it's a great book. I think it's going to be uh, a bridge, actually, between uh, mainstream finance, uh, people from that world coming across into the Bitcoin space. And I think this is going to be one of those books that is going to get passed around trading rooms and, and brokerage houses and, uh, and dealing floors. Um, so Andy, welcome to the show. I can't wait to get into this. Thank you, Dan. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I uh, appreciate your kind words. And uh, I have to say your star may be rising uh, even faster than mine in the, in the Bitcoin world. You have put together already an amazing uh, pod with a lot of great guests and more to come. So I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to getting into it with you. Thank you very much. And uh, we, we ha I have to introduce uh, another guest star to the show today, my nine-year-old daughter, Lauren, who um, has taken a, a great interest in, in my work in podcasting. Hopefully, um, a little bit of Bitcoin will, um, will, will flow into her mind as well. And she has the first question. So, Lauren, would you like to ask Andy the first question yes. today? Why is Bitcoin so important? Wow, that's a big question. <clears throat> Bitcoin is so important because money is so important. Um, this is one of the things that I cover in brief in the book. Um, you know, people who understand Bitcoin and understand Austrian economics already know that money is half of every transaction, at least once you get past, you know, the very base stages of civilization. And so it's extremely important. It's probably the most important good in the entire economy. And Bitcoin has the potential to become the dominant money in the world. So it has the potential to replace the most, well, dominate or replace the most important good in the entire economy. So I would say that is the biggest reason why Bitcoin is so important. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you happy with that answer? I certainly am. And it's certainly going to be your future. So uh, thank you very much for, for leading off the questioning. Uh, you want to say goodbye to Andy? Yeah, bye. <laughs> thank you, Lauren. You're welcome. Great question. Thanks. I was thinking that all day, actually. <laughs> 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 See you. Bye. Uh, thank you very much for that, Andy. Um, that's uh, and a great, great answer. Um, and I hope uh, any other kids... Well, any other listeners that have kids, that, that might inspire them to, uh, to listen to that answer as well. Because uh, yeah, I think well, parents, as Bitcoin parents, we're all trying to find a way to, um, to help the kids uh, understand exactly uh, what is in their future. So well, you've, got a great, you've got a great kid there with Lauren. I, know, I think you have three others. I have two myself. And yeah, that's one of the reasons that I wrote the book was ultimately so that uh, they could, could read it and understand this exciting time uh, in history in the development of money. Did I ever wonder why you've gone so crazy like my kids do? Like, you know, like, Daddy, what the hell are you doing talking about Bitcoin again? <laughs> yes, yes. The kids, the kids do wonder. And my son, who's uh, seven, you know, has started to get some inkling of sort of what's going on. My daughter, who's four, you know, doesn't understand. But uh, we'll see eventually. Are they stacking sets? <laughs> yes, I am stacking for them. <laughs> That's actually an interesting question. I haven't yet implemented an allowance, you know, for either of them, especially for my son. So I need to do that soon. And uh, no doubt Bitcoin will play a role. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, I try and uh, I, I run a, um, I double any investment that they make in Bitcoin. So uh, like that bank of bank of dad, if, if they give up some of their hard earned um, pocket money or babysitting money for my oldest daughter, anything that they give me, I double. And uh, hopefully this will. Um, I love it. I love the matching concept. It's like with a retirement uh, program. And uh, as we know, kids have, uh, have high time preference. So anything you can do to uh, bridge them to a low time preference is, uh, is uh, time well spent. Certainly. And uh, yeah, in this world of high time preference that they're facing, it's terrible. Right. Let's get in. Let's get into the, um, let's get into the interview. And uh, okay. I wanted to, to ask you a question around your profession and you know, your, your history uh, coming from a Wall Street analyst changing over to um, the, the other side of the fence and uh, what is known as a, a fiduciary. Um, and I think it'd be nice for, for listeners to understand exactly what that word means and what your profession uh, exactly is and how that differs from like a broker dealer or um, a financial advisor or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. So in the United States, uh, which is where I live and work, oh, by the way, I forgot to give the usual disclaimer, which is none of this is investment advice. Uh, these are my opinions only. They don't represent the opinion of my employer, Westcap Group, or, or anyone else. But yeah, I'm a wealth manager. I manage money, or I should say I manage investments in money for people. And in the United States, it's interesting. Actually, the majority of the money historically has been managed by broker-dealers. And this is the sort of classic uh, scenario where you imagine the, you know, I don't know, Wolf of Wall Street or Boiler Room or any various, uh, you know, numbers of Hollywood movies. Those are extreme examples. But basically, you know, you imagine the broker pitching uh, the latest hot stock, uh, whether it's a good idea or a pump and dunk scheme because they get paid a commission, uh, you know, basically to, to do that trade, to do that transaction. And so... <clears throat> That's how uh, money has been invested in this country by and large um, throughout you know, modern history. But there's a, there's a growing segment of the wealth management business, which is registered investment advisor. And registered investment advisor is a fiduciary. So there's two standards that you alluded to. The broker dealer has a standard which is lower, which is called suitability. And suitability uh, doesn't extend too much farther than you know, not making a really uh, risky investment for a risk averse, um, you know, type of client. And the classic, you know, image that comes to mind is, you know, the, the older widow, you know, who gets sold some risky uh, stock, some risky high flying stock. Um, the practical uh, matter is that standard is, is relatively low. If you, as a wealth manager who's a broker dealer, can come up with a reasonable, plausible explanation for why some investment should be in the portfolio, then you're fine. Um, a fiduciary has a higher standard, and the fiduciary standard, um, I won't get into the weeds on, on, the, on the legality and the sort of pieces there, but, but suffice to say that fiduciaries have to put their clients' interests ahead of their own interests. Um, and that's important. So what you get with the broker-dealer side is you get sort of, you get plausible investments or investments that can be justified. And often that's proprietary product. So the large investment banks, um, and by the way, since the financial crisis, pretty much all the banks are investment banks and all the investment banks are commercial banks. Um, they all sort of merge together. 
But what we've um, what's developed is that in the banking business, you have huge mega banks, multi-trillion dollar balance sheets, and they'll have a fiduciary registered investment advisor uh, department or entity. And then they'll also have a broker dealer entity, but they report to the same CEO. So what happens frequently is that you get proprietary mutual funds, proprietary, um, you know, loan and other more interesting exotic alternative investment products that are structured by the broker dealer or somewhere else in the organization. And they're sold through the registered, registered investment advisor. And you get, ultimately you get, you know, what happened with Wells Fargo in the last few years, which is management says cross sell as many different products as you can, right. To all your clients. And they tell this to, you know, to all parts of the organization, they tell the registered investment advisor, you know, fiduciary wealth management piece, you know, cross sell these other products we have. They tell to the broker dealers, cross sell everything we have. And so you, you can get in extreme, you can end up with extreme outcomes like we got with Wells Fargo, um, you know, where basically uh, the firm was opening accounts um, in an unauthorized manager for, or in an authorized, unauthorized manner for millions of its customers. And um, yeah, that's kind of the, the state of the world as exists today. I uh, sleep better at night knowing that I am an independent fiduciary. You know, we're a one office shop in the greater Los Angeles area. And we don't have a bunch of proprietary products to, that the CEO wants us to sell. We can uh, basically just do what's right for the client and it minimizes conflicts of interest. Um, you never get to zero conflicts of interest, but it gets you as close to zero conflicts of interest, I believe, um, as possible. Right. Excellent. Thank you. So as a uh, fiduciary then, um, when you're talking to your clients, about Bitcoin, there you you literally are putting their best interest ahead of yours. It's not like you're just shilling Bitcoin because you think it's uh, this this great amazing technology. It's this is an actual investment thesis that is in their best interest. Yes, and I think actually what you just pointed out is is crucial to understanding where we are today in the institutional world with respect to Bitcoin. So my personal journey was, you know, although I ignored Bitcoin the first couple times I encountered it, I could talk about those if you want. Although I ignored it, ultimately I figured it out and I did my due diligence and I fell down the rabbit hole and I spent hundreds of hours learning about it. And I, and I think that I understand it um, at least enough to invest in it. Now, Bitcoin, of course, is, is constantly changing and, and we're all learning something new every day. That includes me. So you never fully figure it out, but you figure it out <clears throat> enough to realize that it is a huge opportunity. It is, I expect, the best asymmetric trade or asymmetric investment opportunity that I will probably see in my lifetime. So once I reach that conclusion, okay, once I've done my homework, well, with that, armed with that knowledge, I better share it with my clients, right? Um, I can't know that there's a huge opportunity here and then not share it with my clients unless, you know, there's some real good reason, you know, like, like there's no reasonable product that you can buy on the market, you know, or there's some structural barrier, you know, or there's some legal barrier or something like that. Um, and those barriers 
don't exist um, today. You could argue that maybe they kind of existed a few years ago, but we're reaching a point in the evolution of this market where I think um, wealth managers are kind of out of excuses um, for not owning this thing. And that's one of the reasons, honestly, that I, that I wrote the book. Um, the proximate reason that I wrote the book was uh, that I had reached that conclusion that it was investable and it was a huge opportunity. And therefore, I would have to invest for my clients. And therefore, I would probably have to explain that to them, especially since the mainstream media has done such an abysmal job of uh, covering this thing and explaining this thing. So, yeah, so that's why I, that's why I wrote the book. Um, that's, that's basically what it comes down to. And what is the average age, would you say, of, of the people that you're serving and you're, you're seeing day to day and investing for and yeah, I have, so I have a pretty, I have a skew actually toward or older clients. Um, that's because of my particular history, which is, this is the family business. Um, you know, I can go into the history for, uh, you know, if that's of interest for, for why I joined the family business in, in wealth management ultimately. But, but I brought my clients who are younger, my personal contacts. And then I also essentially inherited uh, quite a large number of clients um, who were already at the firm, uh, who were my father's clients. And we work together as a team to, uh, to provide service to them. But yeah, they, th there's a big boomer and actually even some older than boomer cohort. But, you know, if I had to say the average age, it's probably, you know, it's definitely in the fifties. It might be high fifties. Uh, but that betrays a range between, my youngest clients are in their 30s and they have high income and they're sort of saving pretty aggressively, right? So they're accumulating wealth. And then on the other end, you know, we've got folks who are, gosh, my oldest clients are in their 90s. There's not that many of them, but, but they are dis-saving and they're, and they're spending down their assets. And so, yeah, so my, part of my task is trying to explain Bitcoin to 30-something-year-olds <laughs> and 90-year-olds. And uh, it's not easy. Well, and before that, are you still working uh, with your father? Is he still part of the firm? And oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, he, so, he comes into the office five days a week and uh, he's fully engaged. Yeah, absolutely. So before you can go ahead and start advising clients, you've got to, first of all, talk to your team, right? And convince them and uh, make sure that they understand, hey, look, I've found this thing. It's asymmetrical. It's non-correlated. We've got to put this in front of our clients. You got to convince those guys first, right? How how hard? How long did that take? Yeah, very hard, very hard, and lots of time. Um, my, I would say my colleagues first viewed it as most people view it, which is, you know, I don't know, criminal money and also a bubble. And uh, yeah, it's been a long, it's been a long education process, and the book was was part of that. Um, you know, to their credit, they're, you know, they're, they're coming around, but, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely taken time. Do you think that is part of the reason we haven't seen more wealth managers and hedge funds coming into the space? Because maybe there's one person at the firm that gets it, but he can't convince the CIO or he can't convince the aging board of directors, uh, to, you know, to shift away from bonds and, um, you know, usual financial instruments. Yes, absolutely. So there's no doubt that understanding Bitcoin takes hours and hours of, of work, right? Um, and there's different levels of understanding. You know, 
like one thing I hope to achieve with my book is if you read it cover to cover, you should learn some things, you know, that provide a launch pad to, to learning more, right? You should at least conclude that, oh, maybe there's something here. Um, but no single book or single conversation or single, you know, podcast or, you know, reading of website is ever going to, you know, convince someone about the story. I guess, I guess I'll, uh, I'll caveat with, there's that precious few number of, uh, you know, former CS and distributed systems, you know, guys, they're mostly guys who say, oh yeah, I, I read the white paper and I got it immediately. And I'm like, wow, good for you. <laughs> I'm so, I'm so jealous. Um, but yeah, absent that small cohort, it's, uh, it's definitely a, uh, a long-term learning process. So imagine you're an institutional investor, you're a wealth manager, and there's this thing, and it's been around now a decade. That's important, by the way. You know, Bitcoin being the best performing asset uh, for the decade ended, ended December 2019. That, I think, helps change the game. But prior to that um, t- passage of time, it was really easy to ignore the thing, and especially because it's hard to understand you know, it was easy to say, well, I got my day job and I'm not that interested in spending tens of hours or even hundreds of hours really learning about this thing. So I'm just going to ignore it. Um, so there's definitely, there is definitely that, uh, that barrier. And then when you talk about the age barrier, right, you talk about, I don't know, your advisor who's in his sixties or her sixties, um, they may not be doing this for that much longer, right? They might, you know, they might have another decade of work ahead of them and then they expect to retire. So they're thinking, well, you know, I know the, this basket of assets. Yes. I've had to learn about a a new asset here and there. Like, okay, I had to learn about junk bonds, you know, back in the Milken days. And I had to learn about emerging market stocks. Um, you know, when those became popular and yes, I had to understand, you know, tech and the internet, you know, 20, between 20 and 10 years ago. Um, but, um, but yeah, they're, they're not, they're less likely to do the work because they're, basically the end is in sight in terms of their career versus, you know, someone like me, I'm in my late thirties. I expect to be investing um, for a very long period of time. I expect to be advising clients for a very long period of time. So if I realize that this thing is likely here to stay and going to go grow a lot bigger, well, then I am going to dedicate the time to understanding it because, you know, I could be doing this for, for decades more. That's a stark message, I think, to uh, individuals that are listening. I mean, what is your message to the people that are listening about, uh, you know, that they're still ahead of, of like the, the big corporations, the hedge funds, the, the pension funds? Yeah. I mean, this is a key part of the investment thesis is that there's still a lot of people who haven't figured this thing out. And if I even just look at the wealth manager space, um, I think there's a lot, the majority of wealth managers, I believe, have not done their homework to understand this asset. And likely the way it will play out is that it'll stick around. They will start to get, you know, questions from clients about, oh, isn't this thing the best performing asset of the decade? And can't we buy it in the account? And isn't it uncorrelated? And wouldn't it, you know, potentially provide a hedge? And oh, aren't debt levels at you know, aren't, isn't debt at record levels and what's the most likely way out of that problem? And if it's inflation, well then shouldn't I own some inflation proof asset? And, um, yeah, so I think those questions are going to come from clients to their advisors, you know, this year, next year, and it's only going to get louder, uh, if, and when we have the next leg up in the market, right? As soon as we break, uh, 20,000, 
on the price, uh, that uh, th- those, those voices are going to get louder. How many, have you met many other wealth managers that are actually you know, advising people to invest in Bitcoin? <laughs> I have not. Um, oh, wow. I have not, honestly. Um, you know, I, 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 did a, I did a call you know, where I was interviewed uh, with Bitwise, and there were, I believe, about 400, between 400 and 500 advisors on that call. Uh, but that was sort of a one-way, you know, conversation. Um, I have uh, part of it, I guess, is is just my bent. Like, I don't spend tons of time just mingling and hanging out with other wealth managers. I'm sort of more independently minded than that. But um, yeah, no, I, I most that I know are still skeptical. I went to, you know, one of my credentials is the CFA. Um, and the CFA uh, chapter in Los Angeles, where I live, has kind of an annual um, shindig, basically by the beach, you know, get together, have drinks. And, um, and I've gone to that for the last few years and, you know, pitched, pitched the Bitcoin idea. And yeah, very few, very few takers. I would say the last time around, which was in the summer, I think it was August, uh, I talked with one or two folks that I had talked about it with over the last few years at the same event and they were you know sort of coming around you know like the first time around it was a toxic you know it was a bubble and it was toxic waste and then the second time around they weren't sure and then lately they're like yeah maybe there's something there but clients aren't ready for it that that's frequently the excuse right oh my my client's not going to understand it my client's not ready for it so you know i'm not going to bother but they're, wow. but they're, you know, there's slow progress there, but yeah, I would say they're, they're not there yet. So we still could be uh, one or two years away from, well, obviously the price is going to make people sit up and, and really notice it, but then. Wow. I, I, I agree. I mean, I can, you know, we can, we can sort of hypothesize about hmm. how the next uh, bull market plays out, but I definitely could imagine a scenario in which the having, you know, brings us into the teens on price and then there's some, you know, cool off period. But if you look at the chart, you know, typically you get more interest and, and even just the exist, existing Bitcoiners say, oh, you know, the, 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 the um, pattern has repeated on these four-year cycles around the halving. And so, you know, late this year should be a good time. And then next year should be a monster year because it's, you know, four years after 2017, which was a monster year. And so you could get enough, I would say, existing Bitcoiners piling in. And then you get record price and then you get the reflexivity of, yeah, of people going to their advisors saying, you know, oh, this thing's a a new record. Why don't we own it? And then you get a scramble among wealth managers and other institutional investors to to figure it out. And then they pile in with a little bit. And that is part of what carries us, uh, you know, well into the uh, five figures and even into the six figures on price, potentially. Right. Exactly. Potentially. Uh, okay. Let's, I mean, you said, um, you kind of hinted on, uh, ignoring Bitcoin before. And, mm. uh, I, I, if I can take, um, people back to your previous career where you were on wall street, um, sure. Goldman Sachs, is that correct? That is correct. Before the financial crisis. Right. Okay. Whenever, well, when everything it, was coming up daisies, you know, every, it was record <laughs> profits and Hank Paulson, Hank Paulson would come on the on the phone every quarter and announce, uh, you know, record earnings for the quarter, and uh, yeah, it was it was it was high times. He was he was the CEO at the time, right? 
Yeah, oh yeah, he was CEO when I was there. Absolutely. Well, can you give us like an insight to what was going on in the lead up to when did you leave the bank? Yeah, so I was there 2004 to 2006. Okay. And yeah, I can definitely, you know, this was this was basically the beginning of my career, right? So, I right. was a I was a young analyst. Um I worked in the I worked in the investment bank and specifically I worked in the part of the bank that did debt financing. So there was this the leverage finance group and the financing group and basically, you know, put, putting together uh, junk bond and bank loan deals for heavily indebted companies. So the biggest sector of course is the LBO, right? Leverage buyout industry, <clears throat> which is still huge today. Um, and so yeah, basically financial sponsors, as we call them, or buyout shops, private equity funds, would acquire companies and they would load them up with lots of debt, um, you know, partly to put discipline on management, partly to increase their potential upside, and partly because uh, debt uh, is favorably, you know, basically tax, tax advantaged, right? And um, so, yeah, so that's the part of the bank that I was working in. And it was, um, it was, it was a very interesting time. I mean, Goldman was at that time, you know, one of the hardest jobs to get on the street. Um, and I was a, a young wide-eyed analyst who wanted to learn a lot and make a lot of money. Um, but, um, you know, so I, so I sort of, I slotted in there and I quickly realized that um, there were some interesting things going on. I didn't have the benefit of the bigger picture at all at that time. Um, I was pretty naive. Um, but I did observe that the structure that Goldman had constructed with respect to um, its human resources and its and its workforce was pretty interesting. So the highest level <clears throat> at Goldman was partner. And at the time, it was something like 2% of Goldman employees were partner level. And my um, I talk about this a little bit in the book. Um, I think the average annual compensation for a partner while I was at Goldman was around 8 million, okay? Average partners taking home eight, 8 million a year. Pretty good work if you can get it. <laughs> so, um, and, and, and it was interesting to observe some of the partners because surprisingly, I actually had some exposure to some of these guys. And they would tend to be either people with very valuable relationships uh, at corporations, or they were, you know, got uh, managers who were managing departments or sub-segments of departments, or they would manage, you know, some product, you know, for the bank. So like, you know, the interest rate swaps desk, for example, would be run by a partner. And the thing I observed about the partners was they not only were tasked with bringing in revenue, okay, but they were tasked with squeezing every last dollar out of every potential transaction. Now, this is different. This is a different um, sort of ethos from, let's say, the law business, right? Law firms also make tons of money. They make lots of revenue. I'm talking about big corporate, you know, global law firms. But they do a pretty good job of managing conflicts of interest. So if they're working for one client, uh, chances are they're not going to work for uh, you know, anyone who has an opposing interest or conflict of interest with that particular client. The investment banks, including Goldman, took a different view. <laughs> they took the view that if we create uh, these walls between different teams, well, then we ought to be able to employ multiple teams that serve multiple parties 
within the same overall transaction, even though those parties might have opposing interests. And so you ended up with scenarios like, um, there's a deal that I talk about in the book um, where there's a leverage buyout, like I described, and there is, uh, Goldman is advising, let's say the seller of the company, right? They're working as investment banker on the sell side. Goldman is also itself has a private equity fund within the firm that is bidding on this asset. Goldman is also proposing and offering financing, right? That was my department that uh, was going to provide the, you know, the, the loan and the bond deals. And then in that case, we also, uh, I think did a hedge deal. So it was a company it was in the paper business and basically it was, it was highly exposed to movements in commodity prices, including both the inputs, which was, you know, like pulp basically. And then the outputs, which was the, the final product paper. So we provided a hedge. So that was, that was called, that was what we called a quadruple play deal, right? Goldman has its fingers in four pieces of the pie, which is amazing because, you know, each of those fees was in the tens of millions of dollars. My recollection is that Goldman for this deal raked in something on the order of a hundred million dollars in fees. And, um, and it's great. Now that kind of ethos though is, it can be problematic. And that's what we saw in the financial crisis subsequent, right? We saw that Goldman and most of the other investment banks, um, I, I guess ironically, ironically, Goldman came out of the financial crisis, you know, better than most. So there's a lot of bad behavior all around, but basically you, you got a dynamic where people, professionals, you know, at the partner level, obviously, but at, but at multiple levels in the firm, took the view that they really ought to get paid on as many sides of every transaction as they possibly can. And they were willing to take uh, risks in order to do that. And some of those risks that they took ended up uh, not working out. Uh, let's just say not working out so well. And we can, uh, you know, I can, I can get more specific if that's of interest, that's in the book, but uh, I'll leave it there for now. That's crazy. But I, I think as well, uh, you know, it's, I think we should both point out that, uh, you know, we've, we've both worked in financial markets uh, for, for many, many years. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, banker hatred that goes around. And, uh, you know, that there are good people that work in the business, right? It's not that there are some bad actors. And of course, there are some, um, some you know, very high up and that there's lots of, you know, you know, rotten kind of behavior that's going on. But by and large, uh, you know, I still have lots of old colleagues and friends that are still there and they're, they're just trying to do their jobs. Um, did you have anything? Yeah, to, yeah. I no, I agree with that hundred percent. And um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, when I was there, I worked with a lot of great people, very intelligent, very hardworking, ethical. I think that there's, a, you know, a couple, one of the stories to tell about the whole system is, is it is the, you know, the, the primary problem was the system and it was the system of incentives and it was how people got paid. And that starts, you know, all the way back with shareholders and government. You know, if your government is basically guaranteeing that you're not going to fail, this is the too big to fail problem. Well, then as a shareholder, I should say as a board, you better extract as much value out of every potential deal um, because you have that actually fiduciary duty to shareholders to make as much money as possible. And that percolates into um, the organization. And so people find themselves in this position where if they don't push the envelope as far as they possibly can, 
then they get fired, you know, or they don't get promoted. And so, yeah, it becomes, um, it becomes an interesting uh, milieu and system in which you can get bad behavior from otherwise good people. And that exists, you know, all over the world in terms of government systems, right? Um, I don't think that, you know, people living under totalitarian or communist regimes are bad people. I suspect they're about the same as you and me and uh, everyone else on the planet. But when you create a structure that has bad incentives, yeah, you get bad outcomes and you get, uh, you get bad behavior from otherwise good people. Well put. And so that leads us into, um, you, you mentioned earlier, like ignoring Bitcoin. And, you know, when did you first kind of hear about it? And why did you ignore it one or two times? Uh, you know, like it's called Once Bitten, the podcast. So uh, if you can remember when you were once bitten, uh, it would be great to, um, to hear your, your insights. That's right. Yeah. I love the name of the podcast. The once, the once bitten comment is perfect. And my experience was, I think what most people experience, which is yeah, you encounter it a couple times, but it doesn't actually really, really bite you. The mind virus doesn't infect you immediately. So yeah, my first exposure was 2013. I actually remember it. I was on vacation in uh, central and Eastern Europe, uh, Vienna and Prague and Budapest. And I was listening to uh, the economist uh, on audio, right? So I was read or listen to the Economist, uh, you know, cover to cover, basically. And they had an article on uh, on Bitcoin, and I didn't get it at all, and I basically ignored it. Uh, the second time for me was 2016. That was actually with Ethereum, and that was the DAO fork. Um, and so that I didn't understand at all, and I, again, I ignored it. And it wasn't, in fact, till mm, I think second quarter in in 2017 when I was starting to get pinged by a couple different people. And then I think I looked at corn market cap and I saw Bitcoin, you know, had a $10 billion or something or 10 or $20 billion market cap. And, and, and the whole sector in terms of uh, cryptocurrencies, you know, was, was two times that or something. And I thought, huh, maybe there's something here, you know, this is either a bubble or a scam or something real. And, um, and it was all those things, of course, but, uh, but that's how I found it. And then I started, you know, then I started digging in and doing my homework and I got interested in the premise. And, you know, I, then I really, I really was hooked. I mean, I was spending, you know, nights and weekends and staying up late and my wife was asking me, you know, what the hell's going on. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't let it go. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm going through that. <laughs> I've been through that. And uh, that's, you know, culminated in this podcast, because I can't, I can't find anyone else to speak to about it. So uh, it's great to, to do this and, and meet people like yourself. Um, so Likewise. like, for, so, for, so that penny drops, right, it starts dropping. So that what's led you there originally is um, you start unwrapping like the, the layers of it. And it's probably a speculative kind of uh, thought, but when did the penny drop that like, Oh, wow, this is actually, this is something I've got to professionally educate myself around because this is for the, you know, this is going to make a huge difference to my, my, my financial career and my clients. Yeah, that's a good question. I think there was some point in the journey. So I unfortunately was not schooled in the Austrian, uh, school of economics. Um, I was raised a Keynesian sadly, like everyone else in the matrix, right? <laughs> and, and Bitcoin for me was actually the forcing function to understand money. Now, I had actually been, I personally 
had convinced my colleagues at my firm, I think in 2016, for the first time to buy gold. So I had a sense for why hard money was important. Um, and I knew about debt levels and I knew about this problem. And I had a sense that inflation was the likely outcome. But I didn't really have you know, a truly in-depth understanding of, of what is money yet. But at least I had dipped my, my toe with gold. Um, it was early. I mean, I can tell you when I made the decision and started writing the book, and that was January. Um, that was January of last year. And Bitcoin was down in the 3,000 something range. And I had reached the conclusion that, okay, I'm pretty sure this thing's not going away. And this might be a brilliant buying opportunity, but I'm not going to just be able to dive in and, you know, I'm not going to be able to dive in with my client money because <laughs> they're going to be looking at, oh, it's a high of 19 or 20K and now it's a three and change. And what are you thinking? <laughs> so I knew I was going to have to explain it. And so that's when I started writing the book and, and I finished the book in June of last year, except then I went through a, a significant editing process. Um, shout out to Beth Rashbaum, who's an amazing editor. She's been doing it for decades. Um, she edited one of Stephen Hawking's books, and she also edited uh, The Snowball, which is, I would say, probably the definitive uh, Warren Buffett biography. So it took me a couple months uh, working with her, and she was great to get the product out. But, but yeah, it was, um, I guess it was January where I made the decision to, um, to write the book, and that was coincident with the decision that, you know, that I needed to, to get clients in. Did I answer your question? Yeah, for sure. And uh, it's funny because you, you brought Buffett up then and we, we were talking uh, before um, about uh, like your background as a, a value investor. And um, that was uh, kind of like um, your, sure. um, how you were exposed to markets, you know, Ben Graham, Warren Buffett and uh, how that shaped your, your theses and um, building portfolios. What, <laughs> but well, I mean, do you think Buffett will ever buy Bitcoin? Is he ever going to get it? <laughs> I think there's two answers in there. The first, or the first is how long will Buffett live? <laughs> I think he's close to 90 or he might be 90. I think Munger is like late 90s, um, something along that line. So, um, so that's, one, <laughs> that's one answer to your question. How long will it take him and how much long, longer does he have? He probably has, has quite a while longer. Um, will Buffett ever adopt and understand Bitcoin. Yeah, I don't know. I think it depends on the timeline. I mean, I think that if we get to hyper Bitcoinization, then everybody's going to have to understand it. Like you'd have to be, you know, really willfully ignorant or foolish uh, not to get it. So a question is, well, if we get to the point where, yeah, where Bitcoin is tens of trillions of dollars uh, or even, you know, hundred trillion, which is possible then yeah, of course he's going to have to understand it. So then the question is, well, what's the timeline for that? You know, will that, will we get to tens of trillions in the next decade? I don't think so. Could it happen in two decades? Yeah, definitely possible. You know, the number I use in the book um, is an $8 trillion valuation within a decade. That's the, you know, the upside case. And um, I can talk about how I arrive at that, but yeah, I think, uh, I think the question for, for Buffett and, and others is just going to be how big and valuable and persistent is it? Um, I think it's, I think it's 
still small enough for them to ignore it. But um, if we go through another bull run and we're into the six figures uh, per Bitcoin, right, trillions in value, then uh, it's going to be harder for those guys to ignore it. Or fud it. You know, like that, that's the problem as well. Uh, yeah, so it is. you can't dangle that carrot of, um, of 8 trillion. And, you know, I read the book and, you know, I think it's amazing how you get to the numbers. So please help the listeners understand where, you know, that, that upside case for 8 trillion is uh, for the market cap of Bitcoin and, and how you got there. Yeah. Yeah. Happy to do that. So there's five categories, basically, of value. And so the first is digital gold. That's the clearest and most developed thesis, I would say, right? Which is when you do the side-by-side -side comparison of Bitcoin versus gold, which I do in the book um, along the 14 characteristics of, of good money, 14 characteristics that make something an effective form of money, you see that it scores, uh, it already outscores gold um, and it's improving. I'm talking about Bitcoin. So digital gold is, is the clearest, I would say, analytical case. And it's also, by the way, the, I would say the clearest, um, you know, the clearest meme, basically. Um, it, you know, th that's the thing that sits in people's mind. Okay. Next is, okay, take, is fiat, right? Taking share from, so, you can, so it'll take share from gold and it'll take share from fiat currencies. And that's first going to be weak fiat currencies, you know, whether it's the Venezuelan, you know, Bolivar or you know, the Zimbabwean currency or, or what, or Argentine peso. And then it'll, it'll, you know, it'll slowly munch its way up as uh, Dan Held says, it's the monetary apex predator. So it'll, uh, you know, basically it'll, it'll uh, consume the weaker, uh, the weaker currency organisms in its environment and then it'll work its way to the top. Um, a big area is, uh, is offshore assets, right? Because Bitcoin is unseizable and hard to confiscate, um, it's going to take a share of that market. And that market is, nobody knows what the total value of the offshore asset market is, but it's estimated between, say, 10 and 30 trillion. So Bitcoin will probably get a share of that, right? It's the quote-unquote Swiss bank account uh, in your pocket, um, except it's actually less, you know, less anonymous you know, the numbered Swiss accounts uh, are or used to be. We can talk about that. So then the fourth category is demonetizing other assets. So that's the store of value. That's the how many wealthy people around the world own multiple pieces of real estate, many of which sit empty, right? These empty flats in London that you know about um, or Singapore or New York or anywhere else that are basically just stores of, uh, of wealth. Well, you know, even just the real estate uh, even just real estate as an asset globally is, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. I think, I think Bitcoin takes a, takes a small share of that. And then the fifth category is just the things we haven't even thought about or things that are in development, right? It's, um, you know, it's micropayments, which basically don't exist in the U S today because the only existing rail for that for the most part is the credit card system. And those guys have minimum, you know, minimum fees. Um, so you can't pay, you know, a, few cents or a couple cents for an article. Um, you've got new uses like, uh, like what Abra has built, which is basically a backbone where the user can hold Bitcoin as collateral that gives them a swap uh, to, at, to access more or less any liquid asset on the planet, right? They can own the S&P 500, you know, by holding Bitcoin as collateral. And I won't get into the details on how that works, but, but it's pretty cool. 
Um, so yeah, so the fifth category is, is those brand new things that we haven't even thought about or are under development. And when I look at gold, I see, okay, gold is an asset. When I wrote the book it was 8 trillion. Now it's closer to 9 trillion. And yes, there's some industrial use value. Maybe that's 2 trillion, but probably, you know, there's monetary value of around 6 trillion. And I figure that Bitcoin captures, you know, roughly a third of that. So that's 2 trillion. Then with fiat, you know, there's, there's base money, which is coins and banknotes in circulation, uh, which is roughly 7 trillion. Then if you look at the demand deposits, um, you know, M1, essentially you're at, you're at 35 trillion. And then if you include all CDs, which is, I guess, M2, you're at 90 trillion. And I think that I think that the base money, the seven trillion figure, is probably too low a potential. But I think the you know the ninety trillion is too high because I think a, a world with where Bitcoin is is dominant, um, you're going to see lower debt levels. But suffice to say that there's probably a couple you know a couple trillion of value that, that Bitcoin could capture there within a decade. Um, offshore assets, again, you know, I think I use the lower end of the 10 to $30 trillion range. I say, okay, the 10 trillion, maybe Bitcoin captures 20%. So that's another 2 trillion. Demonetizing other assets like real estate. I'm pretty conservative there. I, I, I think Bitcoin gets maybe a trillion to value, you know, maybe, maybe of the $200 trillion of real estate, you know, and the stock market of 70 trillion, you know, maybe 10% of the of that total value is the moneyness or the store of wealth. And maybe Bitcoin captures a few percentage points of that. So you get to a trillion dollars of value there. And then for the new and unproven stuff, I assign another another trillion dollars of value. So that's how I get to, to the $8 trillion uh, potential total. Wow. And I actually think that's conservative. <laughs> yeah, I know. And that's, that's what comes across in a book. Like, like that's conservative. And uh yeah. Which is, by the way, not to say that the thing can't fail. I mean, I think the thing can fail. And I can also imagine a scenario where I'm totally wrong and it just becomes sort of a niche asset and it doesn't grow that much in value. So, you know, there's definitely a greater than zero probability that it fails. But uh, if it doesn't fail and every day that it goes by that it doesn't fail, it becomes more Lindy, as they say, right? And, um, oh, I love so, the Lindy. You you explain you explain where that that name Lindy, like the Lindy effect. And uh, could you just do, right. explain to the listeners how that came about? Sure, the Lindy effect and Lindy's law. <clears throat> and this is attributed actually to multiple people. I would say that Nassim Taleb uh, probably popularized it, um, but it was it was it actually goes back to um, oh man, I'm blanking now. Who's the guy that discovered fractals? The mathematician. Um, well, it'll come to me. I think he's originally credited. But yeah, the story is Lindy's Eatery, which is now closed. Um, it, I think it closed a few years ago. But it's in Midtown, New York, and it's near Broadway. And the story was you would have shows that would come out of Broadway. And uh, the actors you know, and other participants would, would go get a bite um, you know, after a show. And they talk about the prospects of their show and the other shows that were playing on Broadway and, you know, how likely were they to succeed? You know, how long would they last? Because most shows disappear quickly, right? Most shows fail. They, uh, they somehow manage to scrape together some funding. They put together the show, you know, and it's gone within a few weeks because it just, it isn't good enough or it doesn't catch fire or, you know, who knows? Um, catch fire, I mean, among the, you know, among the viewing populace. Um, so Lindy's Law was what these, what these people in the business and show business realized was that the longer a show had been running, like the more days it had been running, 
the more days it was likely to continue to run. So if you had a show that only been out for a week, it was like, well, chances are, you know, it's got another week and then it'll probably die off. But if you had a show that had been going for a year, well, chances are that's got traction and it probably goes for another year. And the, the idea with Lindy is that this extends to many things in life. It extends to technology, especially. And the idea is that something that's been around for a long time, I don't know, let's say the, the tradition of marriage or the fork, right? Or, you know, the wheel, these basic technologies, if they've already stood the test of time, then they're likely to stand the test of time uh, more in the future. And this is especially crucial with money because people aren't going to store their value, store their wealth in an asset. They're not going to be willing to hold an asset and endow it with a monetary premium unless they think that it's going to have value tomorrow and next week and next year. And so a brand new form of money, which is what uh, Bitcoin was a decade ago, uh, doesn't get too many people excited. Yeah, it gets you know real hardcore libertarians and cypherpunks and um, you know technologists. It gets them excited, but the average person out there says, "Wait, this thing's existed for you know six months or a year. Like, why should I assume that it's going to be around you know a year from now?" And that's why we're at this interesting inflection point where it's been over a decade that Bitcoin has existed. And by the way because Bitcoin is the first, it will always be the most Lindy, at least among, let's say, cryptocurrencies, right? It will always have the longest track record, unless and until it's compromised, right? Unless and until that happens, it will always have the longest track record of success. And for a monetary asset, that is crucial. So yeah, that's Lindy. Well, well put. And if we could just come back to your 8 trillion uh, market cap, uh, what price, if we reach an eight trillion market cap, what does that translate to in terms of like a sticker price for uh, for Bitcoin against the dollar? Yeah, yeah. So if you assume, you know, you do round numbers. First of all, it, it depends on how many uh, coins you assume exist. Um, if I, you know, there's 21 million that will ever be minted, um, and it's believed that a significant number of them are lost, potentially millions of them. Um, Satoshi himself or herself or themselves, uh, you know, had roughly a million, it is believed. So a question is, you know, are those coins lost and gone forever because Satoshi's dead? You know, will those ever be moved or available? We don't know. Um, but, it, but it seems reasonable to assume that quite a lot of them have been lost because there's all these stories about people early, in the early days when it wasn't worth that much writing it on a piece of paper, you know, writing their key on a piece of paper and then losing it or, you know, putting it on a, on a laptop and the laptop's in the landfill now. So yeah, so some number have been lost. Um, I would say a conservative view would say, well, let's say that there actually will be 20 million, you know, which is almost the 21 million available. Well, 20 million would imply what a $400,000 per Bitcoin valuation, um, at 8 trillion. Um, so yeah, so there's, there's your answer, which is obviously, you know, 40 times higher or whatever uh, than we are today. It's just incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's like I said earlier, it's, a, it's, a, it's the most asymmetric, you know, highest potential trade I've ever seen um, in my lifetime and, and probably ever will, especially when, you know, when I, when I probability weight the, the potential outcome, right? Sure, there are other assets 
that are much riskier and you know could go up by a hundred times or a thousand times, but the probability of that outcome is is so vanishingly small that when I probability weight um, you know the potential outcome, I say that that Bitcoin is uh, is the clear uh, is the clear leader and the clear opportunity. And I want to make it clear to listeners that uh, you know this isn't just a, a number you're pulling out of your your backside, right? I mean, it's all written out in the book, um, like your fourteen. Uh, what do you call them? Your your fourteen. Um, fourteen characteristics of good money. The fourteen characteristics of good money, which you go into one by one, and then you yep. you, you have a scoring system which you use against each characteristic, and then you run that scoring system through gold, through fiat, through Bitcoin. And then you come to all of these numbers. So I urge people to, to pick the book up and, and take a look at it. And obviously we can't go through each 14 um, you know, characteristics of money, but do you have like one or two in particular that you, you want to throw out there? So that, that might be underrepresented in, in other people's views of characteristics of money? Yeah, I, I think that's, you know, the, the short list is identifiable, transferable, durable, divisible, dense, scarce, short-term stable value, long-term stable value, fungible, unseizable, censorship resistant, private, required for some purpose, and backed by a powerful agent. I think when most people think about these, they'll, they'll, it'll stand to reason. I think one thing some people miss is, is this uh, is the uh, difference between short-term stable value and long-term stable value. I think that's crucial, right? Understanding that the dollar has excellent short-term stability, but terrible long-term stability because it gets inflated way over time and is sort of the opposite of Bitcoin today, which has bad short-term stability, but so far has had long-term stability, right? The value has gone up. And gold is somewhere in between those two. Um, I think that's crucial. People get hung up on the stability. Um, so that's one thing. I think the also the the over the other overarching theme is no form of money scores highly on all these characteristics. That's crucial to understand. So it's pros and cons. Some are better in certain characteristics than others. And so really understanding the potential of a new money, a newer money, let's say like Bitcoin versus older forms of money you have to open your mind to the possibility that these uh, there are different scores along the different characteristics and moreover that different people value different characteristics uh, in different amounts. But um, yeah, I guess, I guess that's, uh, that's what I would say. Do you have the 14 uh, like tattooed on your arm? Is that how you remember it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's funny actually. I've, uh, I've rehearsed them and I do have them memorized and, um, (laughs) <laughs> but it's not so easy. Unfortunately, there are 14 of them, right? I keep hearing uh, people talk about, you know, the six or seven characteristics of money. And it would be nice if you could you count them on one hand or two, but uh, it just ain't so. It, no, and everyone's busy trying to remember their 24 private keys, right? right let alone like the, this extra 14 <laughs> that you're throwing on top. And we need yeah, to, memorizing seed words. Yep. We, we need a good acronym. Somebody needs to come up with a good acronym here. So uh, it's easy to remember. Um, I thought about that too, and I haven't figured it out. So if you could crowdsource that one uh, for us, that would be great. Yeah, okay. That's the challenge. To, to, challenge all, to, all, to all listeners of, uh, of Dan and the Once Bitten uh, podcast, let's, uh, let's figure this out. <laughs> so once, you, once you've come to this, you, you've gone through this and you've scored it all. Um, and that, that brings me on to my question about um, 
portfolio creation and like the traditional way that well, we'll tell folks, um, the, you know, the traditional way to to put a portfolio together. Uh, and obviously, it's going to be different from a 30 year old to 40 year old to 50 year old. So uh, perhaps choose like something in um, in the middle and how you generally put together a, an investment portfolio and how just by adding Bitcoin, you know, it kind of makes things a little bit more interesting. Yeah, happy to do that. So we um, take a multi-asset and global view when we construct client portfolios. So we've got actually about a dozen asset classes that we talk about. And I maybe won't get into them all, but suffice to say that this includes stocks, right, equities, but there's a bunch of subclasses. So you've got by geography, you've got US, you've got foreign developed markets, that's mainly Europe and Japan and Australia. And then you've got emerging markets, broadly speaking. And then within those, you've got different categories. So you've got large and mid and small companies. And then you've also got value stocks and growth stocks. So there's a lot of ways to slice the, the equities. And you can subdivide further, but uh, I'll leave it there. And then within fixed income, you've got a bunch of categories too. You've got you know low risk government, low credit risk government debt. You've got municipal debt, you've got mortgage debt, you have you know, master limited partnerships, which are sort of quasi debt, quasi equity. You've got junk bonds and junk loans, um, which we talked about earlier. You've got all these um, different categories. And then of course, you've got alternative assets. You've got, we have a category which is hard, essentially hard money, right? That's gold and um, precious metals and Bitcoin. So out of all these things, you create a portfolio and portfolio theory tell us, tells us that for a um, given level of target return, you can reduce your risk by holding a portfolio rather than just holding a few assets. And diversification is as close to a free lunch as you can get in the world. Uh, it's not quite free, but, um, but, it's, but it's close to it. So one ought to diversify if one um, isn't going to be happy by a massive loss, right? Look, if you're willing to lose all your money on, on one asset, you know, you're free to do that. But most people aren't willing to see their savings, you know, go to zero or even see their savings go down by 50%. So that's portfolio construction. Um, the, the, no, the numbers that I used in the book, I simplified it slightly, right? I didn't want to use like a dozen asset categories. So I just broke it down to five sort of establishment assets and then Bitcoin. And the five I used were U.S. stocks as represented by the S&P 500, um, foreign developed market stocks uh, represented by the MSCI EFA index, emerging markets use the MSCI index again, and then Barclays aggregate for bonds in general, and then gold um, as representing precious metals. And then I added Bitcoin. And so the way I looked at it was, I looked at the thing we're measuring against, right, is Bitcoin. And so you say, okay, well, how much Bitcoin data do we have? I use Bloomberg data, which are pretty robust, but the Bloomberg data actually aren't that reliable prior to, I think it was June, 2011. So that's as far, as far back as I went. And I constructed, you know, a portfolio of these classic, normal, regular way establishment assets. And then I did a portfolio with Bitcoin and surprise, surprise, the portfolio with Bitcoin, uh, performs a lot better than the one without Bitcoin. And the, the, there's a few scenarios in the book, but the, I think the most interesting one is the no Bitcoin portfolio, 
I just do in those five classic asset categories, I just say 20% to each one, right? The fifth to each one. And the total return in that period annualized, the annualized return is 4.58% with a standard deviation, that's monthly data standard deviation of 2.64%. But then when I instead, um, you know, add 2% Bitcoin, take that out of the other categories, and then add basically some cash as ballast, and I use the three-month treasury bond, which is cash-like, I get to uh, an annualized return of 7.27% with a standard deviation of 2.63%. So for the same standard deviation, uh, which is a measurement of risk, we can talk about that in a bit, for the same standard deviation, the annualized return goes from about 4.6% to 7.3%. Okay, that's a dramatic difference. Um, it tells you that because Bitcoin is actually relatively uncorrelated to these other assets, if you have a little bit of it in the portfolio, historically, it has helped your returns a lot without adding additional risk. Now, there's another interesting question, which is what is risk? In the investment management business, people look at volatility, particularly monthly volatility, and they think about that as risk. I actually don't think about that as risk. Um, the thing about uh, volatility is their end correlation is there are some assets out there that are relatively uncorrelated to, let's say, U.S. stocks, except when you really need them to be uncorrelated, <laughs> right? And that's what matters. What matters is when you hit a financial crisis or a major recession or you know, a significant scare in the financial markets, that's when you need the assets that aren't going to go down in price all at the same time and cause you to panic and panic sell, right? Because that's the worst possible outcome is crystallizing the loss um, because, you, uh, because you let your amygdala get the better of you um, and have too much fear. So we care a lot about you know, how these assets perform basically in a, in a downturn in, in risk assets in general. And that's in the book too. And there, I look at five periods basically um, uh, when five periods in you know, the last decade of Bitcoin, and this is an interesting uh, criticism of, of Bitcoin as an investment asset is, Bitcoin actually has not existed in a period of, let's say deep recession or deep financial market panic right? Because Bitcoin came out after the global financial crisis. That's no accident, by the way. Um, however, there have been about, um, there have been five periods in the time that Bitcoin ex existed. And I had these in the book. Basically, when I think the threshold that I used was when the, when the S&P, you know, was down 10% or more. And I looked at each of those. And the punchline is, in, I think, two out of five cases, Bitcoin performed better um, than stocks, significantly better. And in three out of five, it did worse. Or maybe two out of five did worse, and, and in one, it sort of did the same. So it appears that it's not the case so far that Bitcoin is negatively correlated to stocks or to risk assets. But it at least appears that in those periods of stress, um, it, has, it has been uncorrelated so far. And then you can bring that forward to today and say, okay, well, what's going on recently? Well, we saw the coronavirus scare. Bitcoin's been performing well. We saw the Iran scare, I don't know, a month ago, and Bitcoin performed well. So, you know, the, the holy grail for Bitcoin is that it maybe ultimately becomes negatively correlated with other risk assets. 
while still accruing value over time and taking share from, from other assets like we talked about before. Um, we'll see if we get there. I think there's a good chance we will. Um, but that's how I think about uh, the portfolio um, construction. And when, the, when you come to the question of, well, you know, how do you size it for clients or how should someone size it for, for their own portfolio? Still the same rule applies as with pretty much any asset, which is um, you shouldn't own more of any asset than you're willing to lose all of, right? You should be willing for any particular asset to go to zero and you walk away and you say, well, I got a bad roll of the dice, but it didn't ruin me. So size, size your portfolio positions accordingly. Um, the example I used in the book was a 2% allocation, you know, for people who are just starting to dip their toes, you know, you can start under 1%. Um, almost nobody, you know, if the thing goes to zero and you lose 1% of the portfolio, that's not going to ruin anyone. So, you know, that's a safe level. And once you get comfortable about the investment thesis, you can, I think, size up um, accordingly. Yeah, perfectly. Um, I mean, when you, when you, when you deliver that to clients and did a jaws drop? Like when you're saying, you know, literally or just a one to 2% allocation of the portfolio has this asymmetrical non-correlated you know, aspect to it. Or yeah. You... Some of them, some of them, uh, some of them struggle with that or it's disbelief. Um, there's always the counter, which is, Oh, you know, Bitcoin's funny money and it's a bubble. So, you know, the last decade is irrelevant. And, um, you know, that's, that's the criticism, you know, basically Bitcoin is tulips and that's the criticism that's been, uh, you know, levied by people in the past and some who haven't done their homework still say that, um, but uh, certainly it's gotten harder and harder, I think, to, to make that argument. But yeah, there's a, I mean, I get a range of responses. I mean, some, some it's disbelief, you know, some say, yes, it makes sense that the best performing asset of the decade has a significant effect on an overall all portfolio in small size, but I still don't believe in it. So I don't care. Um, yeah, you know, it, it runs the gamut. Bitcoin is tulips. I haven't heard that one for a long time. Remember that? That was the main <laughs> FUD. Uh, like what? Two, it feels like a few years ago now, but uh, yeah, we've moved yeah. on from that one. All right, but FUD, um, I, I think we'll go with uh, environmental FUD um, because I know, uh, you know, that's, that's something close to your heart. Um, yeah. What can we say? What can we tell people? Um, you know, what are your thoughts around, you know, Bitcoin being bad for the environment? And, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I'd love to hear you. Yeah, yeah. Bitcoin's going to boil the oceans. Um, right. so the first thing I'll say is as professional investors, we try to be second level and third level thinkers, right? Anyone can look at a piece of news or a piece of analysis and say, Oh, here's what I think will come out of it. Proximally, right? Like here's the immediate effect of some, of some event. The people who make money, figure out the secondary effects or the tertiary effects of some event. You understand this. You spent many years, uh, many years on a trading floor and many years in financial markets. And uh, this is especially true with currencies, right? Which is, which was your area of expertise um, as much as with any other asset. So with Bitcoin, we really have to think at least two levels down. And this is where people make a mistake. So the Bitcoin network uh, consumes lots of energy approximately, you know, an amount of electricity equal to, um, you know, a smaller medium country. That's true. 
So a couple of things to ask are, well, is it worth it? Um, I would say that, you know, if Bitcoin's consuming, let's say one to 2% of global electricity today, then a question we should ask is, what is a sound money worth? And my answer to that is <laughs> a lot more than 2% of global electricity. I would suggest that it might be worth 10% of global GDP, which itself is much larger than, you know, electricity use. I think it's extremely valuable because it helps us avoid some of the distortions that we've been living with since we left the gold standard, you know, almost 50 years ago. So that's, that's one thing. Now, nevertheless, it does, um, well, I'll cite a report. So CoinShares, um, CoinShares issues this report periodically, which is pretty good, which attempts to estimate how much of energy production in Bitcoin, I should say how much of energy consumption by Bitcoin is clean versus dirty. And this is crucial, right? So something that burns or consumes energy is only negative if it consumes energy that, let's say, adds to uh, climate change. And by the way, I'll say that, you know, all, all this discussion assumes that climate change is real, that it's uh, anthropogenic, right, that people are causing it, and that we should do something about uh, limiting greenhouse gases um, to avert or reverse climate change. I actually believe all those things. So I, so I work from that assumption. So the question is, okay, how do you reduce greenhouse gas emissions? Well, you've got two options. You got carrots and you got sticks. Um, so sticks um, is more like taxation, you know, it's carbon tax, it's agreements globally to reduce carbon emissions, you know, to cut fossil fuel consumption. That's all great, um, except it's basically totally impractical. We've seen that it's largely failed, um, you know, since the Kyoto Protocol so far. And there's a lot of reasons it's failed. Um, you know, partly because the strategic interests of the major powers of the world, you know, are diverging more than they have in a long time. But it's also because <laughs> there's all these people that live in relatively poor and emerging countries that are still, that still need to be lifted out of poverty, right? If you want to go to, you know, some, let's say, governor of a state or region in India, you know, who's responsible for the livelihoods of tens of millions of people. And you're saying, yeah, we need you to um, incur some extra costs so that you don't, you know, install the coal plant or the natural gas plant. And instead, you know, you install solar arrays and uh, wind power, which is more expensive. And he says, um, I got people, you know, living on $5 a day or less, like, you know, thinking about the climate, you know, 10 and 20 years from now is just a luxury I don't have. And by the way, those people vote for me. So if I'm going to stay in office and keep power or keep, maintain my power, no pun intended, then I have to deliver more power to them because in order to lift these people out of poverty, they need to consume more energy. So the sticks are really tough. So carrots are more interesting, I think. And so now we get to the, the idea of subsidy. Now, the example I, liked, I love to invoke is everybody's favorite stock, Tesla, right, now has over $100 billion of market capitalization. How did it get there? Well, Tesla sells actually a luxury product. Their cars are uh, more expensive than most cars. And um, yet the government has deemed it wise to subsidize their production. So for, you know, every wealthy uh, person driving a Tesla in West LA that they spent 80 grand for, you know, I don't know, five or 10 grand of that came from the government. Why are we subsidizing already wealthy people? Well, there's good reason for that. And the good reason is that the way you bring down the cost of production of any technology, but especially uh, clean green technology, is by subsidizing an increase in the number of units sold 
because increasing the number of units sold allows efficiencies um, of scale from production, and it also funds the research and development uh, budgets of the companies that are continuously improving that technology. So now when we go to energy production, we say, okay, um, solar as a good example. So solar panels have been around for decades and decades, and they used to be extremely inefficient, right? A solar panel, which its feedstock, right, is sunlight, would convert maybe 1% or 2% of the energy that it absorbed into usable electricity. Well, with time and with government subsidies, you know, those government subsidies came from US governments, you know, Europe, even China, the efficiency rate of those panels went from 1% to 2% to 5 to 10 to 20 and upward. And we're finally getting to a point actually where some of these renewable technologies in certain cases are cost competitive with the old dirty you know, fossil fuels. Um, but there's still more to be done. And there's more to be done because there's two levels of, uh, let's say, cost efficiency that you have to achieve. The first is the marginal new capacity that you're installing. So we go, we go back to India, to that regional uh, governor, and he's looking at, okay, I got to deliver however many more megawatts next year and the year after and the year after that. How am I going to do it? Am I going to install a coal plant or a natural gas plant or a solar array? Well, at the margin, fortunately, these renewable uh, sources are becoming more competitive. So it used to be that he would just install the coal plant. Now um, he's got some options. However, if we really want to make a dent, people think, in the, uh, the climate problem, not only do we have to, at the margin, install clean green energy production capacity. We have to actually take the dirty stuff offline. And that's a higher level of economic cost because the already installed coal plant that went online 10 years ago still has a useful life of 40 years. And so instead of saying, oh, what's the fully loaded cost of the renewable source versus the fully loaded cost of the fossil fuel source? I have to say, what's the fully loaded cost of the renewable source you know, versus the fossil fuel minus the installation cost, which is already a sunk cost. So that's a higher level we have to uh, we have to meet in order to make it competitive. So that's an even higher number of units of the um, renewable source, whether it's wind turbines, whether it's you know geothermal, whether it's solar panels that need to be sold in order to bring the average cost down over time and drive those research and development budgets. Okay. With Bitcoin, for the first time, we have a global market for electricity. What does that mean? Um, electricity doesn't travel all that well. Um, if you put a power plant 50 miles from a city, that works. You get transmission lines that carry the energy over that distance. When you start to go hundreds of miles away or a thousand miles away, you lose too much of the of the energy in transit. I think it's even nonlinear. I think it might be a you know a squared function of the distance or something. So anyway, it just doesn't work. What we observe empirically so far with Bitcoin today is Bitcoin has already found otherwise stranded uh, sources of energy production. And these, product, these sources of energy production uh, tend to be clean and green. So it's hydropower. It's all these dams that were built in mountainous and remote areas of China and the Pacific Northwest of the US and Canada. It's um, geothermal in uh, Iceland, right? Yes, there's 300,000 people in, in Iceland, but they can't use nearly all the energy that's produced there. And Iceland is remote enough that, you know, there's too much electricity lost if you try to, you know, pump it to continental Europe. So we've got 
cases like one that I looked at recently, there's a company called Saluna. What they are doing is they are building a wind farm in Morocco and they are building that capacity specifically to mine Bitcoin and crypto. And the dynamic that you see, this is happening with solar too, is that there are all these otherwise stranded sources of energy that would have been uneconomic to harness, you know, it's, it's sun rays coming down in the middle of the Sahara. It'd be great if you could install a solar array there, but unfortunately, you know, Mombasa and Cairo and Lagos are nowhere nearby. There's no population centers there. So the energy is wasted, but not anymore. Now you can mine Bitcoin and Bitcoin has no cost to transfer globally. So actually you're seeing new installations of clean green energy capacity that would not have been installed without the existence of Bitcoin. Bitcoin has allowed the harnessing of these previously remote and uneconomic sources of clean green energy. And it is thereby increasing the number of solar panels sold, the number of wind turbines sold, the number of physical or the amount of physical plant that uh, would have been sold otherwise, which increases the units sold. It funds the research and development budgets of these companies that are making this technology even more efficient. And it thereby accelerates actually the reduction in cost of this clean green energy and thereby should increase um, basically the rate at which it's installed uh, in the world. And I had this argument, by the way, with my wife who's last night that she said, well, look, that's fine. But what about the 30 or 40 or 50% of Bitcoin that's getting mined by dirty sources? You know, if Bitcoin didn't exist, well, then that energy wouldn't have been consumed. And I, that's true. However, what's important about, and what a lot of, what a lot of environmentalists say is we basically got to freeze, you know, the amount of, of uh, greenhouse gas that's being emitted now and, and reduce. I don't think that's practical. I think more practical is instead accelerating the, uh, increasing the amount of uh, units shipped of, you know, solar panels, for example, and thereby sort of getting over the hump and getting to uh, fully loaded cost efficiency on the green energy at a sooner date, because there are government agencies and companies who are making capital expenditure decisions now and next year and two years from now who are facing that decision, you know, do I install the coal plant or the nat gas plant or the solar array or the wind farm? And once they've made that decision, then we get back to, uh, it's, it's very hard to reverse that decision and it's very hard for the clean green capacity to compete with the cost of taking down, you know, or decommissioning or competing with an already built plant. So yeah, accelerating, I think, accelerating this process um, is really important and bringing these sources of clean green energy down the cost curve faster than they otherwise would have um, may actually end up in a net benefit for um, let's say the cleanness of, of energy overall uh, in the medium to long run. It's uh, still to be determined, we'll see how it plays out. But I think it's important to think about these second level effects on the economics of installing uh, clean energy capacity versus the more proximate, you know, oh, if Bitcoin didn't exist, you know, we'd be, we'd be burning less energy. And then the, the last thing I'll say is, the question, another important question is, well, how much does the existing monetary system cost? Um, here again, Dan Held's done some good analysis. 
it's not just, uh, well, it's the fully loaded cost of everything. It's the physical material for, for printing cash. It's the energy to do so. It's the bank branch systems that distribute the cash and it's the armored cars and it's, you know, the, the fuel they burn. And then of course, uh, and the security cost, right, of, of securing that cash, which is higher than, than, you know, securing Bitcoin. And then of course, it's the granddaddy of them all. It's the cost of the U.S. military, uh, both environmental and economic, um, you know, to, to, uh, to back this current uh, fiat dollar system. So when you fully load the cost of that versus the cost of, uh, of Bitcoin, I think you see that uh, the cost of Bitcoin is, is today still probably just a fraction uh, of that fully loaded cost. So there's the long-winded diatribe. I, uh, I hope I got through the logic, but, uh, but and, I'm, and I'm trying to hone my pitch there. I could probably condense it, but that's, uh, that's the story as I see it. No, it's fascinating. I, and, and just to put another layer on top, there are companies out there such as um, Upstream Data, which Steve Barber, mm. uh, you know, and what he's doing with, with taking mining rigs out to uh, oil fields to, to capture the, the, the gases that would have been flared into the atmosphere. So using waste product to uh, yes. power a mining rig to, you know, create Bitcoin, to create a, another revenue stream for, for these guys, which is, like you said, that then goes into research and development and that goes into more scientific research and that just proves the, the whole ecosystem. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's, that's spot on. And uh, this is actually, I think, a misunderstood point, and I covered it in the book, um, which is the thing that's most harmful about the natural gas is basically the leaking. And so it's actually the flaring that you have to do to mitigate the consequence of, uh, of the leak. It's leaking methane into the atmosphere. You know, the methane has 30 or 40 times the uh, greenhouse effect that burnt natural gas has. And so if it's otherwise going to be wasted natural gas, um, then yes, flaring it and burning it at the wellhead is better for the environment than just releasing it. And as you say, better yet is, burning it in order to, uh, you know, mine some Bitcoin there, you actually get a cash payback and that provides the incentive for, for the drillers who otherwise wouldn't get paid to flare it. So they don't bother to flare it and they just release it. And, uh, yeah, it's important. And right at the beginning, you said it comes down to sticks and carrots. And I think that's a really good thing to, to come back to because, you know, I believe, you know, if you're using sticks, what are you creating? You, 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 you're going to create, bad actors you're going to get people that are trying to circumnavigate the rules that are going to break the rules um in in criminal ways because they're not incentivized they're incentivized to find a way they're incentivized to find a loophole rather than you know with the carrots analogy rather than find a solution absolutely and this gets into the concept of prohibition right which is anytime you make any activity illegal then exactly as you say, you get people who, you know, they make the, the economic decision that, oh, you know, I can make more money by circumventing the regulation. And if that circumvention means uh, breaking the law, well, then they have to find a way to protect themselves. And that frequently leads to either organized crime, you know, or bribery of officialdom or some combination. And um, yeah, so anytime you make something illegal, you foster criminality. And so all else equal, you know, better to use the carrot arguably than, uh, than use the stick. 
for sure. Well, Andy, uh, we're gonna have to do a round two because, like, there's so much more that we could uh, that we could cover, and um, you know, I don't want to keep you uh, talking too long. Um, I thought we'd yeah, wrap I'm up. Game. I'm game. This is this is great. Uh, pleasure is mine. Happy to uh, to do it. Uh, happy to do it again. Well, thank you so much. And you know, there's so much left on the table. I've got notes and notes and notes. But um, <laughs> like, let's uh, let's definitely try and wrap it up. Um, I want to ask you uh, if there was, and this is how I generally close out these interviews, but uh, slightly different in your case. If there was one person, one person you want to pick up your book, who would that person be? And who, you know, and think about their, their, their audience, their demographic, because I want them to read your book. Then, then shill the hell out of it because they've understood Bitcoin and they, they want their audience and the people that, uh, you know, connect with them to understand Bitcoin too. Yes, yes. And of course, it would be someone who has, you know, great reach or influence or, or audience. And um, yeah, I think actually, I mean, you mentioned Buffett, you know, another one that comes to mind is Ray Dalio. You know, Ray Dalio runs the world's biggest macro hedge fund. He's very bullish on gold. And the reason he's bullish on gold, the reasons he's bullish on gold should apply to Bitcoin too, but he hasn't gone on record about it. So if he doesn't yet believe in Bitcoin and he still needs to be convinced, you know, I would like him to, uh, to read my book. He's also, he's younger than Buffett. Um, he has an open mind, I think in general. And, you know, him going on record bullish Bitcoin would be, I think, uh, you know, a paradigm shift potentially within the institutional uh, investment management business, whether it's pensions or, you know, hedge fund managers or wealth managers like me. I think, uh, I think a guy like him uh, could move the needle. Well, you know what to send a copy of the book now. I will. I will. And we'll have to get him to listen to this podcast and uh, yeah, convince him to uh, spend some of his uh, very valuable time. His time is valuable. I mean, I think he's, a, I think his net worth is 20 or 25 billion. So uh, may take some, uh, may take some uh, cajoling, but you know, maybe some of the macro guys actually, maybe, uh, you know, maybe Raul Paul can, uh, can uh, convince him. Well, let's hope as so. An example. Raul. Raul's going to be on the show this week. So uh, it'd be interesting his, his answer to this question, actually. Uh, you know, who, who yeah. would he most like to, um, to, because Real Vision have done an incredible job of converting um, a few of the big guys, right? Um, yes. Hats off. They've, they've done some really, you know, Raul and his team have done some really good material. And um, he's actually one of the best. He's one of the best voices uh, we've got in Bitcoin in the, in the area of sort of establishment finance. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Andy, this has been uh, so much fun and um, look out for round two, everybody. If, um, before we leave, where can people find you? Um, where can they buy the book? Where can they learn more about you? What other podcasts have you appeared on? Let's make sure people can find out exactly where to hear more. Yes, from you. of course. Okay. Um, so you can follow me on Twitter. Um, I've only recently started being active there, but I have been pretty active. It's Edstrom Andrew is my Twitter handle. Uh, the book is called Why Buy Bitcoin? Investing Today in the Money of Tomorrow. And it's very available on Amazon. It's also available on, on Apple, on the books, Apple books, but I've been primarily been selling on, on Amazon. And that's both a physical copy or you can get the ebook. Um, I had done a couple of podcasts. Oh, I guess I'll say, you know, I do have a personal website. It's andyedstrom.com. My firm is uh, westcapgroup.com. 
Um, I, uh, I have been on two podcasts so far. I did Citizen Bitcoin and I did Bitcoin Echo Chamber. So Citizen Bitcoin with Brady and uh, Bitcoin Echo Chamber with Colin. And I had a lot of fun doing those. And uh, so I do recommend people check those out. And I think that, uh, I think that pretty much covers it. Great. It's been a blast. Thanks. Thanks for, thanks for doing this. Uh, thanks for doing this, Dan. It was a lot of fun and I look forward to doing it again sometime. Thank you so much for your time, Andy. And uh, yeah, have a great day over there in LA. Be good. Well guys, thank you for listening. And um, thank you again, Andy, for coming on the show. It was an absolute pleasure to sit down with Andy after reading his book, I've been sharing it on other podcasts. I don't know if you've been listening to those as well because I've been really, really impressed with the book. I've been really impressed with listening to Andy on other podcasts as well. And that was the reason I chased him down because I really wanted to get on the show and explain to us, you know, like at the beginning, you know, what is a fiduciary? What is that role? And how does that differ from the broker-dealer kind of arrangement that we've all been growing up in? And, you know, it's pretty... um, he lays it all out on the table there that, uh, you know, you've got fiduciaries and broker dealers sitting under the same umbrella, cross selling stuff. And this is how wall street is operating uh, and still to this day. Um, so if, if you're listening and you're, you're part of that, then seek out Andy or seek out a, um, you know, a standalone fiduciary that, that can and make sure they're, they're up to speed on Bitcoin. And this is a hard ask. There's not that many people out there that are doing this. That's the scary bit. You know, the wealth manager is going to earn their salt. They should be very well versed in the best performing asset over the last decade. And we had Raul Powell just, uh, Raul Powell on just uh, before Andy on this episode. And he was, um, you know, he laid it out exactly the same way. He's like, you know, it's been the best performing asset for 10 or 11 years. If you're not, if you're in financial markets and advising people and you don't have a view on Bitcoin, you're not doing your job right. End. Uh, let that sink in. And it's th- these are questions that you've got to start putting to your financial advisors if you're using them. I, I certainly have. Uh, I've reached out to mine and, um, you know, I've asked the question, you know, what's going on? What's the narrative? Um, and it's interesting. It's interesting the answers you get. So make sure you send some emails out, make a phone call and f- feel around this area. Uh, and see what kind of answers you're getting back. I also loved um, Andy's um, description and like breaking down the the energy fud that's surrounding Bitcoin. And like what he said at the beginning is like, you know, uh, is it worth? No, what is sound money worth? Is it worth one to two percent of global energy per year? Well, then yes. <laughs> like that yes there is a value there is a value to the to the electricity that is being used to mine bitcoin and you know that that comes down to the whole proof of work uh, argument and like you know that's what you know keeps the system um running and um the the, the money sound and his carrot and stick anal- uh, analogy was brilliant um he actually um after the uh, after the interview he uh, he kind of said, oh, I think I screwed up that that answer. I think I rambled too long about the energy thing and I've got to get better at doing that. I think he nailed it. <laughs> like, you know, he most people are like, if you have this conversation with somebody in a pub, like, oh, you should buy Bitcoin. Oh, it's bad for the environment. No, it's not. It's driving clean tech. 
Andy's just given you like another like magazine of bullets to shoot down that argument now. You know, it, like the whole the whole way he rounded it out from a business model perspective, a political perspective, uh, a climate change perspective was I mean that that is the most rounded eloquent answer I think I've I've ever heard and I'm going to have to re-listen to it uh, and arm myself with with plenty of that data because uh, I think it did a great job of that. Um it did a great job of all the questions. Uh, I <laughs> listen I've had to re-listen two or three times and I, I know I'll keep going back to it and I'll be looking out for Andy on any other podcasts that uh, he appears on because it's um, that, that we left so much on the table. There's so much more in the book. Check it out and um, you know support him as much as you can. Go find him on Twitter and start interacting with him. He's very, very um, quick to get back to you with answers and advice. He He wants to be part of the community and he's really adding lots of value already. Um, uh, I'll wrap it up there. Uh, thank you again for listening. If you've got this far in, I'd really appreciate, uh, right, the best way to support the show is just retweet it, start talking about it and start, start bigging up the people that are coming on and, um, you know, uh, giving up their time to, to speak with me. Um, you can find me on Twitter at princey 1976. You can also go, um, go over to, uh, once dash bitten.com, uh, where you find out a little bit more about me. And there's another link to my uh, other site and my family blog. Um, have a great, uh, have a great evening, uh, morning or afternoon, wherever you are. Thank you for listening. And uh, yeah, look out for the next episode because that's a cracker too. Take care. Bye bye.